0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with David Brown and Andy Green. And today we're going to be talking about two very different classic rock acts, Bruce Springsteen and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. There are new books out about each of these acts. And as it happens, one was written by Mr. David Brown. It's called Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. The Wild Definitive Saga of Rock's Greatest Supergroup. That's one of those titles you have to read. It's hard to keep that on your mind, but it accurately describes this book, believe me. And the other book was written by me, Brian Hyatt, and it's called Bruce Springsteen, The Stories Behind the Songs. Nice, easy to remember. I don't know, maybe more concise next time. I don't know, David, but... There's a lot to get into my subtitle and title. A lot of names, the, a lot of themes. And Andy Green is here to question us. Andy has his own book coming out next year, but we won't talk about that just yet. Yep. So, first of all, we realized... David and I that there are very brief intersections between Bruce Springsteen and Crosby, (laughs) Stills and Nash. Very brief and we will cover them very briefly. And so I'll summarize. First of all, there was a softball game circa what year? 1976. So a 1976 (laughs) softball game. There was no nukes and in 1979. Yep. And then they briefly in your book, Bruce literally does a walk on during the (laughs) rehearsals for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame anniversary concerts. But very, very briefly, let's go over said softball game because what happened there? Well, basically, in 1976, David Crosby and Graham
1: Nash were touring as a duo, and it turned out that one of their crew members was friends with one of Bruce's crew members, and they were coming through New Jersey on tour, Crosby and Nash were. And so the Bruce crew member said, hey, we got a baseball team. Why don't we get together and play a game together? And of course, Crosby and Nash did not have a team, but they agreed <laughs> to do it anyway. And they all assembled. It was on uh, uh, this field in New Jersey near the Garden State Arts Center, which is now the PNC Bank Arts Center. And needless to say, the East Street Kings were much better. Graham Nash did didn't even know how to hold a mitt in the right hand. He's British. He'd never played baseball before. The Crosby Nash team had to come up with a name. They called themselves the San Francisco Hoovers. You can read whatever you want into that name as far as illicit references. And Bruce's team totally killed him. But they probably had a great time, posed for a picture afterward, had some barbecue. So it was, uh, it was an interesting symbolic passing of the torch moment in rock history I think also
0: there's also some metaphors in there that Bruce and the East Street Band were this well rehearsed crack team that were ready to go and Crosby Stills and Nash were just like yeah sure we can play some <laughs> softball man like Graham's never seen a baseball before but I'm sure we can do it right, <laughs> like it was that laid back California thing kind so, of uh, working against them so in that, that way right, there's a metaphor in it and uh, just more broadly as I said my book is the story of one man and his very dedicated compatriots working with <laughs> with ferocious intensity for decades on end to perfect his craft. And your book is fascinatingly the opposite. Your (laughs) book is the story of a group that made one near perfect album and then spent 40 years or so, 50 years trying to get back to the garden. And it's all the more fascinating for it. Talk about them as possibly the single most dysfunctional rock band of all time. That's an accurate description of these guys. And
1: I think it was right there from the beginning when Crosby, Stills, and Nash started recording their first record together and Stills wanted to call them stills cosby nash and so there was before they finished recording it so there were always those frictions (laughs) right from the beginning and you had this situation where you threw these four very different volatile guys together in a band for various reasons they all kind of gravitated toward each other for kind of musical reasons and for kind of supportive reasons and you know financial they knew it was a big deal we'll have a super group back then and when it worked it worked and when it didn't they would go off on their own and do their own things which they said from the beginning like hey we're not going to be your typical
0: group and we're going <laughs> to do separate sure, things
1: yeah. yeah and they've lived up to that in all these kind of ways
0: <laughs> you know one thing I, we did an event at the Strand Bookstore and I, what I didn't ask you is to just quickly go over the amount of reporting you did for this book because it's it's almost 500 pages long it is truly the definitive CSNY book no one ever dare do one again. You did it and you reported your ass off, if you forgive me for phrasing it that. So just tell us a little bit about that.
1: Uh, Sure. You know, I had interviewed some of those guys before for an earlier book called Fire and Rain. So I was able to kind of go back to Crosby and Nash, who gave me some time and some of their memories. But, you know, a lot of the best stuff, I reached out to uh, former backup musicians, managers, you know, people like Roger McGuinn and Judy Collins, who had a relationship with Stephen Stills. And in fact, you know, that baseball story that we just talking about came from one of their road crew members and that's one of those things that just you don't expect people say oh you reach out to everyone you can and you never know what people know (laughs) you know and he's the guy with the best memories and who had even the photograph of that event and you know i got some documentation from old contracts and things like that and people you know i think after 40 50 years there were a lot of people in their story who had never been spoken to before were willing to come forward
0: you can really feel that and andy was already a bit of a csny expert so i'm just curious what you have to ask david (laughs)
2: Yeah, I suppose. I'm just curious first to hear your history and hear how you first discovered, you know, like CSNY and your first memories of even hearing them. Sure. My first memory was,
1: I remember being in the back of my parents' car in a kid in New Jersey and hearing Woodstock. And I, I must have heard some of the earlier stuff before on the radio, but that's the one that I remember That hearing that song on the radio and those harmonies engulfing the car. And I was just like, wow, what is this? Oh, well, I had two older sisters and one of them had some of their records and she left and took the records with her. It was like the opposite of Almost Famous, you know, where the older mm-hmm. sister like leaves the good records behind. My sister, Colette Lover, took them with her. So I bought my own copies of like Deja Vu and Nash's songs for beginners and you know from the beginning just like love the how unusual the singing and the songwriting were and the different personalities they were like the Beatles in some way like you could not even envision they were a band And um, I've just kind of been following ever since and reading the pages of Rolling Stone ever since I was a kid, too. And you'd read like, oh, they're back together. Oh, wait, no, they just (laughs) broke up again. And that was established early on. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I have kind of a long history with them. And I feel like uh, part of me was born to write the
2: book or something like that in that regard. Yeah. So then tell me about talking to Nash and talking to Crosby. You had how much time with them and you did the interviews where to sort of walk me through that process of talking to the two of them.
1: Sure. I reached out to both of them through uh, intermediaries, and they seemed open to it. And Crosby actually had some downtime. And so I went out to his house outside of Santa Barbara. He's got this nice little kind of ranch house. And um, we spent a couple days, actually two days, talking for a number of hours each day in a little office that he has with his computer with a wall lined with all these pictures from their history, you know, from the moment they met Jimmy Carter in the White House (laughs) to uh, Woodstock. It's a fascinating little gallery he's got like staring at him in the face all the time and um, we followed up with some phone stuff and uh, Graham Nash by coincidence, now lives here in New York where he moved a couple of years ago after breaking up with his longtime wife and, and moving from Hawaii and moving to New York Can I just new say girlfriend.
0: his quote in the book he's just like I didn't love my wife anymore I was like Jesus <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah. My god <laughs> just to show how honest these guys were sorry continue, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah Yeah. no yeah and
1: uh, so he lives here in New York so that was easy we got together like four times
2: I huh, think, and, and they were down for any topic I mean, I'm sure at times it was uncomfortable to go so deeply into their history and their dysfunction. It was,
1: but they, I remember Crosby just said at one point, you ask me anything. I won't necessarily answer always, but you're mm-hmm. free to just ask me anything. He loves to talk. They both actually kind of love to talk about this stuff. As much as painful
0: as it might be, they don't mind going over it in some ways. So when you go to Crosby, you're like, let me get this straight. You had a knife, a gun, <laughs> 40 pounds of coke, and a backpack. as you That's an exaggeration. On a motorcycle. What exactly were you thinking? Were there moments like that? There were moments like that, and his
1: memory is a little spotty as a result of that. He put himself out there on the edge just about as much as anybody, and he doesn't deny any of that stuff. And he actually has regrets about, you know, what he put himself through and what he put them through. You know, he kind of looks back on now with definitely some uh, degree of embarrassment.
2: But, you know, he owns up to it. So do you think in hindsight it was worth it for them to hire Neil Young? Because he gave him mm. mm. what, about three or four songs that are truly great. Right. But he sort of doomed them because he made everything after he joined and left. It seemed less than or the first album was without him, and it's their best album.
1: Right, this is such a topic to debate in their world, even to this day. I mean, yeah, one of their friends uh, said to me, yeah, it's like someone who's known them since then, he said, well, I don't still don't understand why they did it. It's like they ruined the brand. You yeah. know, every time <clears throat> they had this big hit album with the three of them, and then after Neil joined and left, and every time they'd reunite, even just the three of them, somebody would be in the audience, where's Neil? You yeah. know, even though they had it. <laughs> but it was a mutually beneficial relationship, you know, which we forget. CSN needed some additional musicians to back them up on tour. Neil's solo career his first was, two
0: albums were great, but they didn't sell, you yeah, know, and so yeah. he needed the exposure. And, and we forget how weird and off message sort of the first album was for Neil. That it just was—it's such an anomaly. But there's, but
2: there's the loner on it. That yeah, there's right. some great songs. Yeah. But his career—it was doing so poorly by that time that he was playing guitar on Monkey Sessions. I mean, <laughs> I would argue that CSN was a lot better for him than for
0: CSN. And as with many things in the life of Neil Young. Yeah. Once they benefited him, he would uh, walk on. Yeah, so to speak. Yeah, and that—that is—that <laughs> recur- exactly. is, <laughs> that was a deliberate. <laughs> that reference that was very
1: that. nice, Brian. A little on the beach yeah. reference yeah. there.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, that's true, and that's the recurring theme of the story that I was, you know, reminded of over and over again. He would reunite with them and do a tour maybe even a record and it would sort of you know benefit him in some way or another (laughs) financially uh, in terms of exposure or just in the way he likes to just jump around different projects and you know there was this one story that I thought was so revealing where CSN were playing a week-long shows at the Fillmore in San Francisco in 1997 and uh Neil lived near there of course and Stills and Young ran into each other Right before the first show at a restaurant. And Neil was like, oh, I'd like to, maybe I'll sit in with you guys. And they hadn't played together in, on stage in a long time. And so the next night, sure enough Neil pops up and he, he sits in with them for the last two songs and it's like oh my god the four of them back together again and the guys just assumed he was gonna come the second night <laughs> yeah. they set up a whole backstage area for him for his gear and for food and everything and nope no Neil he was back home <laughs> yeah,
2: and it's so fascinating is that Neil was screwing stills over in 1966 and he's still doing it now <laughs> and they're still friends it's been over 50 years of him screwing him and yet they're still buddies <laughs> it's a family and it's a dysfunctional family I mean the, the cliche they
1: always bowed is like you know we're like brothers and i think that's true though it's like brothers who get together for a family you know holiday meal and everything's kind of fun in the beginning and then by the end of the night they're kind of like getting on each other's nerves again and they wait till the next holiday
2: yeah you know i think that the coolest thing about your book is you give equal weight to all periods i feel that so much analysis of csn is just 68 through 70 And then that's it, basically. But you really show that the 80s and 90s, that there's so much there that's been underexplored. Oh,
1: thanks. Yes, I felt that way. I mean, we can argue about quality of some of the music they made after 74. I think, actually, they made some really good solo records. I mean, Neil, separately, that's a whole other discussion. But mm-hmm. the CSN guys actually did still produce some good music after then. And the human element of the story is always fascinating, as much as the music and the dynamic between those guys and how it shifted over the years and what happened when Crosby was in deep in his addiction and how that affected the dynamic. How did they deal with it? And when Neil would come in, how would that change things again? That's... You know, it's a very human story, and I think that's one of the things people find fascinating about them as much as the music.
0: And yeah, like, sort of pathos of them gets upped for me starting in the 80s and 90s because they really are just men out of time. As we discussed, even by, like, 73, people were like... Crosby Stills Nash the symbol of the faded hippie dream and then what about 10 years later 20 years later and they're still you know they may well be symbols of this thing but they got to keep going on and there's something really poignant and fascinating to me about that it's true
1: I mean partly it was their own fault and that they were so <laughs> associated with Woodstock the movie and their manager David Geffen made sure they were in there and had songs on the soundtrack and they were so connected to that festival and that movie and the fringe jackets and everything they wore and you know it, it was a blessing and a curse in a way as you say it really was
0: and it, it actually makes me think Neil Young may have been brilliant to not want to be included in Woodstock and then to, as we said the other night, to go as far as to deny he'd ever been there because the one thing he's refused, I mean, say what you will about Neil Young, he's refused to be locked into the amber of any period or anything like that.
2: Right, right. But he was willing in 2000 to go back with them for a huge money reunion tour. I mean, at the moment that he needs money or something that then all of a sudden it's teach your children. Well, I mean, he is willing at times to go back when he needs
1: it. And the last tour they did together was of course in 2006 he just put out living with war this anti-bush album and you know he wanted to expose those songs to as many people as possible and he realized if he used got together with those guys they would play bigger venues and you know, more people would pay attention, and so they came in. They come in handy at particular periods.
0: You know what I didn't think of really until just now that it's so Neil to have that tour in two thousand six. Was it even before midterms, or was there any election? Yeah, it was it? before the midterms. Okay, so at least it was yeah. to affect the midterms. Okay, okay, it was. but it just was sort of like vote for change, but you really can't. Like, like <laughs> it was more like let's impeach the president for lying, which wasn't going to happen. But you know, I actually like how that song is constantly. It, it, people thought that song was would be dated instantly, but it turns yeah. out you could just keep yeah. using it. <laughs> Um, and I didn't want you to do this very briefly because I really enjoy putting you in the spot and hearing you do this because it's so funny Just very quickly going through all the lineups that Crosby, <laughs> Stills, Nash, and Young uh, broke off into over the years oh, We sure. won't hold you to 100% accuracy okay. but yeah, yeah.
1: This was my life the last three years keeping this timeline straight Well it started as Crosby and Stills, they were the first duo Then it became Crosby, Stills, and Nash Then it became Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young Then they fell apart and it became just Crosby and Nash and then Stills and Young separately.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Then it became Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young again. And then that fell apart and became Stills and Young for a while. (laughs) And then while Crosby and Nash were still a a duo, then we circle back to the becomes Crosby, Stills, and Nash. No, actually, I'm sorry. It becomes just Stills and Nash for a very brief period around 1980 when Crosby is just not in good shape then that becomes cosby stills and nash because it's the business people are like no you have to have him back in the band whether no matter what condition he's in and then yeah then it kind of circles back around to the young again and nash again and now it's like all separate
2: yeah it's like crosby and nash and still and and, and let's talk about now because this is their big 50th year now so they could be on a huge tour now they'd be making a fortune what the hell happened Well, you know,
1: I always doubted whether that would even happen in terms of Neil. Like, Neil's not like, as we've just discussed, he's not a, like, Mr. Nostalgia Tour guy. You know, like, as you discovered, Andy, a couple years ago, they put out the box set of the 74 Tour, and you talked to everybody about it except... Uh, which
2: person didn't want to talk to him? Neil. Neil, right. <laughs> well, and they were furious about that because they worked so hard on that box set and they knew that if he didn't promote it, that it wouldn't sell well and he refused to do anything for it. I have and a
0: quickly relevant point, which is Andy basically made me ask, I think two years ago, yeah. made me ask Neil about the possibility, about the fact that it's the 50th anniversary <coughs> of CSNY and, you know, any chances for a celebration. And they go, uh, Neil, uh, I was on the phone with him. I was like, so, Neil, there's this big anniversary coming up, the 50th anniversary of CSNY, and he goes, it's a huge anniversary! It's big! I'm so excited about it! It's huge! Like, with the most, like... I can't even convey the contempt and, and fury with which he said that. It was, like, the most searing sarcasm I've ever encountered from you and me, and I was like, thanks a lot, Andy. But still, I guess that does express his his feelings about it.
1: Yeah, Yeah, the odds of that on his end were always slim, right? But now... You know, the falling out he had with Crosby over some things Crosby said. He claims off the record about Daryl Hannah, who's now married to Neil. That didn't help at all. And and Nash is furious with Crosby and says he'll never sing with him again because of all that. And uh, it's kind of a bigger mess than ever. I mean, a couple years ago, I actually asked Michael Lang of... Woodstock fame, who's now doing the Woodstock 50. What do you think about getting those guys? And this was, you know, two, three years ago when I was doing the book and we started the book. And he was, even then, he was like, I've reached out to all of them. And oh, man, it's just a mess. I don't think that's going to happen in (laughs) in 2019. And he's still saying
0: that. And he only got Crosby, you know? Yeah. Stephen Stills' voice seems like it's particularly rough shape, isn't it? Or.
1: Yeah, I mean, he. Uh, it, it's been improved a little bit with like onstage ear monitors, and he's using things that help, but you know, it's, it's a little wobbly. But at times.
2: it's been wobbly for 20 years, right. but his guitar playing is still fantastic. Right. Right. Yeah,
0: there's a little bit of singing involved in Crosby, Stills, and Nash, though. But Crosby and Nash, they can sing their ass off. One of my favorite just little moments, and there's so many great moments in the book because it, it's full of vivid storytelling. It's not full of, You, I think you said in an interview you don't like biographies that have more sort of theorizing than they do vivid moments. So you, it's really a story. It's novelistic. I mean, you certainly have your share of interpretation and, and very smart thoughts in it, but it's essentially a story and told vividly. So it's full of those. But there's a wonderful moment when he's out of jail, and they all get back together and rehearse, and Crosby sings, and they're like, God damn it, how do you still have your voice? Because, <laughs> like, thank God, like, his voice didn't go anywhere, despite everything he did to destroy it. It's amazing he's still alive, and he even says that. You know, I mean,
1: he's he'll be 78 years old this year, and he's on his liver, transplant from 25 years ago, And you know, freebasing his brains out for seven or eight straight years there, and and he's actually making pretty good records, much more listenable than you would think.
2: Yeah, Uh, and he's been he and he has diabetes, he's at Hep C. I mean, he's been through everything a man can go through, and yet here he is. It's sort (laughs) of a miracle. (laughs) it's
1: a remarkable thing and yeah that comment was the, probably the first comment along those lines of people
0: going oh my god like you know he's he can actually still function maybe it's sort of like he pickled and thus preserved himself <laughs> that's <laughs> it's a heretofore unknown scientific phenomenon but if there is sort of a happy ending to the book it is that this miracle of Crosby his productivity in the last few years that he's made these albums and it, the sound often isn't what people expect as you said like suddenly at one point it's earlier it became clear like oh he loves Steely Dan (laughs) and it's a little bit more of a you have to adjust your expectations it's not going to be like his first solo album which I love talk briefly about that solo album because that's fantastic yeah
1: a record that at the time it was called If I Could Only Remember My Name it came out in 71 it was part of the first batch of solo albums they made after their breakup and yeah at the time that record was really disparaged we kind of forget you know people thought it was just too spacey and wasn't focused and all this stuff and of course that's what's great about it. You can imagine everyone being totally stoned on their record but it's just beautiful music and of course there's that great song cowboy movie
0: we were riding back
1: Many songs they wrote about each other and their foibles. That's another theme that runs throughout the book. <laughs> they, they don't necessarily talk to each other. They'll write a song about each other and not tell the other person, and it comes out on a record. You know, and uh, you yeah, know that one's about their breakup with the help of Rita Coolidge. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that first record is fantastic and it's aged really well. And and um, it seems like a whole new kind of generation of indie types have kind of discovered it too. Is it's
0: very kind of out there. It's kind of it, a, it, it really is, is like an indie record. You know, it's yeah, yeah, it's very cool. We were just talking about David's book. Book, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Wild Definitive Saga of Rock's Greatest Supergroup, which just came out and is really great. And I have a book that just came out. It's called Bruce Springsteen, The Stories Behind the Songs. And I'm really excited with how it's been doing. People seem to really like it. People are buying it. It's awesome. And basically the idea behind the book, it's one of these books, there have been a few of them, not about Bruce though, but a few books that tell the stories of every song by an artist. And when I was approached to do this, I think the reason I did it is because I'm nuts. And I felt like, I didn't want someone else to do a book like this on Bruce and not do tons of new research and reporting. Because a lot of books like this, not all, are kind of just summaries of what's already out there presented in a nice package. And I figured there was a lot of room to add to the historical record. So I took it on and tried to go as nuts as I could with the reporting. And I did about, you know, 60 hours of new interviews. I drew from my own five interviews with Bruce and transcripts given to me by colleagues, including David and Andy. And hopefully just shed some new light on kind of like Bruce's creative process, his recording process, because it's not just about the songwriting. It's about the recording. It's about the arrangements. It's about all sorts of stuff. So I talked to all the producers from Brendan O'Brien all the way back to Mike Capell, his very first producer, and engineers. And all sorts of, down to, like, the assistant engineer and Human Touch, the assistant engineer in his first album, all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, I guess I'm curious what, what you guys want to know. Yeah, you
2: know, I just think it's fascinating that so much attention in Bruce's world is on the concerts. It's always the concerts, the concerts, the concerts. But I feel as if that his studio work is almost seen in an unfair way as, like, the demos for the concerts, just, like, the rough versions of the songs. But that's not the case, really.
0: Well, I think what that sort of neglect of his studio output I mean it's sort of hilarious to even talk about neglect of the studio output for an artist who's one of the most beloved and studied of all time Sure, sure. but comparatively and I think it varies you know but I think the relative neglect of his studio output gave me a lot of room to move in because by digging in and defining it as no we're talking about the studio recordings that means you know even songs that were recorded only live like Light of Day and seed some spectacular songs aren't in the book because it just does not fit the format of the book. It's about the studio recording. So it it left me room to really dig into the process and find out some new stuff. And I think people were really excited to talk about it. And there were some things, first of all, the later work post-2000 is really wide open because people haven't dug into that as much, present company excluded because Andy Green certainly has, but even so, no one's done it in a book form, really dig into those recordings at all. Sure, You know, for his whole career, there's hopefully fresh stuff. But one interesting thing that I found, and I've talked about this a little bit, is the Greetings from Asbury Park album, his first album. If you want to talk about an album that is sort of seen as basically demos, it's that one. And yes, there is truth to that. I mean, it is a very, very raw album. And the obvious things I realized is people say, oh, there's no electric guitar on the album besides Blinded by the Light. You kind of hear that. And it kind of goes right past you, and then you realize, no, literally, there is no electric guitar, not even a rhythm part, nothing of electric guitar except for "Blinded by the Light" and at the beginning of "Lost in the Flood." As Steve Sant told us right on this show, actually, and that's why he that he punched his guitar amp, and that's what that explosion sound is at the beginning of "Lost in the Flood." And- Otherwise, there's no guitar solo. No, so what you hear is everything that sort of sounds like electric guitar is actually David Sanchez on some kind of electric keyboard. And that,
1: that was a real one of many, many eye-opening moments in your book. I didn't realize that myself and I, I love that record I've so many times it never really dawned well, on me.
0: You put, you insert the electric guitar with your that's mind. That's true. <laughs> that your is mind true. is on rhythm guitar. It's uh, like, and, yeah.
2: And was part of that because John Hammond signed him and he wanted him to be folkier.
0: Well, so we've all read the early accounts that there was a dispute over how acoustic the album would be, and they ended up just taking it very literally. It was a band on many of the tracks, but it's a quote-unquote acoustic album, so there's no electric guitar. It was was a real sort of, honestly, a little bit of an amateur hour move to be so literal about it. Because Lost in the Flood feels like an electric song, then you realize like, again, no, and, and it's just David Sanchez and I will say I talked to David Sanchez among all the many other people I, I spoke to, uh, you know, Max Weinberg, where I bit and they were, we should go over some of that, but David Sanchez, when I spoke to him about that record he barely remembered what he played, so I ended up playing him his parts on the record and he would go, oh, oh my god, that's really good and it actually is, because there's not much playing on that album, it's, again, it's like a down, but the little things that Sanchez does, like at the beginning, I think of Hard to Be a saint in the City, like, he plays this awesome little jazz jazzy thing again as on the second album sanchez is a huge huge presence and there, there's even i think it's a loss in the flood when sanchez is on like organ or electric keyboard and bruce is clearly playing piano i don't think there's even acoustic guitar in that song it's, it's like piano and electric piano and it's funny how much they approximate a demo of like the heavy electric version
2: yeah, so I want to talk to you about some of your interviews. So you spoke to Max Weinberg for how long?
0: Like six, seven hours, yeah, straight. <laughs> no, it was uh, two or three interviews. It's a line I keep saying. But all these guys, Bruce, worked with them and loves them because they have stamina. They're yeah. willing to go to the limit, and they understand and respect someone else who's insane and wants to take it to the limit every time. You know, right? And,
1: and I have a question about that. Yeah. Let's do some psychoanalysis. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that recurring through the book is, as we talked about the other night. Starting with especially Born to Run, Bruce took record making so seriously and we'd put people through these paces, put himself through it and rewrite the songs over and over again and all these drafts of lyrics. Where is that coming from inside of him? What do you sense? Why this drive for perfection, which exists in music, but I mean, he really exemplifies that as much as anyone.
0: Well, one of my entries that I'm most proud of and maybe one of the most pretentious is the entry for the song Hunter of Invisible Game. it's a very late song it's it's actually on high hopes i believe and but it was written earlier a little early in the 2000s and recorded early in the 2000s as was the case for many things on high hopes but hunter of invisible game is is about the same thing a lot of these songs are about which is like this basically the spiritual quest It's this thing driving at you that you're trying to solve. You're trying to solve basically like the mysteries of the universe and the mysteries of your own psyche and the mysteries of your life and the mysteries of the historical forces around you through the sort of prism of art. And I think that's just what Bruce was driven to do. I just think that he saw it as like only when love and need are one and the work is play for mortal stakes, you know, as the poem goes, it's like the work is play for mortal stakes. Like he just was incredibly serious about his task. He didn't have anything else to care about for a long time. (laughs) You know, I mean, eventually he did. Eventually he had a life for himself, but he just needed to get this right and nothing else mattered you know do you think he has to prove himself to himself or to other people i don't know if it's about proving itself i think it's about a quest mm-hmm. i think there's a almost a spiritual quest at the heart of the whole thing that People might overlook about the sort of mystical spiritual side of of Bruce, which is you kind of hear it in New York City Serenade, you hear it in Hunter of Invisible Game. There's moments when, and you hear it in Born to Run, because Born to Run is about a spiritual quest, ultimately. You know, and like, because that's a spiritual mission. I want to know if love is wild, I want to know if love is real. That is a spiritual quest. Do I sound insane right now? No, no. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. But yeah, Andy. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, I want I want to talk about Sandy for a second because I think that's one of his best songs. It's his first perfect song, perhaps.
0: Sandy, the fireworks are
1: hailing over oh, Little Eden tonight. Forcing a light into
0: all those. This is a story behind the song that I keep telling, but I do enjoy telling it. So, Sandy is unique among Bruce songs and among songs in general, because it's about a date in a place. Mm-hmm. There must be other songs like that, but it's hard to think of them. And so Saturday in the park, what is that? Chicago, yeah. But what's is that a specific day? It must have been. I think
2: been... it was the Fourth of July. Oh well, there you go. So, <laughs> so, that, so
0: that was right. So that's right. so the Chicago song is also in a park somewhere on the Fourth of July. But yes. then, we'll leave that aside. I'm sure there are other songs in this case. September <laughs> by uh, by. Oh well, well,
2: yeah, by the by Earthwind the four fire. by the Four Seasons also. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> oh what a night like late september yeah yeah, 63
0: yeah so there we go so we sidetracked so there are songs that are specifically in a date Mm -hmm. and place but so sandy july 4th asbury park and it was unlike some other songs it was clearly completely manifested itself in the year 1973 so i was very curious like did anything happen during the fireworks on 4th of july asbury park 1973 you know, maybe something happened. Maybe a fight, something that like helped it stick in his mind. I uh, did some research and incredibly, I still can't believe this. There were fireworks every year since World War II and every year since in Asbury Park. The one year in which there were no fireworks in Asbury Park, New Jersey was 1973. And there's an Asbury Park Press article about it from the day before where they're basically like the city manager or whoever is really bummed out about it. And the fireworks company basically refused to service them because it was such a troubled city and probably, frankly, they were racist. So there were fireworks that year in Bradley Beach, New Jersey, where Bruce was living, and I confirmed that he was at home. At least he was not in the studio and he was not on the roads. So he was almost certainly at home with his girlfriend in Bradley Beach where he was living on the beach so he probably saw the fireworks there almost certainly. And one would have to think that it sent his thoughts back and he knew that he couldn't see him in Asbury that year and it sent his thoughts back to all the years he had seen them in Asbury Park and like 17 days later July 21st, 1973 Goddamn, if he doesn't debut Sandy in concert. I mean that's just dots connecting but I really enjoy that. Yeah,
2: that's very cool. And so tell me the role that bootlegs played in your process because there's so many Springsteen's studio bootlegs. I think of his river sessions where there's seemingly just endless stuff out there you could hear, take after take.
0: Well, what's funny is what was most useful for me is what is no doubt least entertaining for fans over the years. And I, I've been saying this it's like it's one thing if you're writing a book, it's another thing, even if you love Bruce, to sit there and listen to these fractions of songs of him stopping and starting a tape recorder, which of course is a terrible violation of his privacy that this was released, but it's been released, so what are you going to do? But to listen to version after version of the early incarnations of Borneo, say, which are all out there, if you're not writing a book, even if you're a serious fan, it's not really pleasure listening which is why there's lines that I picked from these bootlegs that no one seems to have ever quoted before because I guess no one could really get through them (laughs) right Mm. it's just because it's just not very interesting unless you're focused and it's work then if you're doing what I was doing it's the most fascinating valuable thing in the entire world but for a fan of course you'd much rather listen to a great live bootleg or something or a bootleg of a finished studio song that's otherwise been unreleased but these process things are just like someone just gave a huge gift to someone working on a book like mine.
2: so what changed for him because with Darkness and The River and Born in the USA he's recording songs like a maniac he'll make a hundred songs and use ten but by Tunnel of Love that ends forever so what changed with this process? So
0: I think it's two sets of changes first of all like Prior to Darkness, I'm Born to Run, the stress was he kind of knew what the songs were and he just needed to rewrite those individual tracks endlessly, lyrics, music, arrangements, to get them right. Then it shifts and he's able to finish songs much more quickly, has a more clear sense of what the sounds he's going for. At a rate that's just truly astonishing, he was just generating and recording songs at the prime of his creativity from 78 to 83 that output will stand against anyone in the history of rock. That stuff, and a lot of people don't know, people who aren't hardcore Bruce fans don't know the outtakes and stuff and might scoff at the idea that there are outtakes that are just as good or, or better than the released stuff. I assure you that that's the case. Then what I think is he then, it's just a matter of gaining focus. He then became clearer on what he wanted for the albums. For Tunnel of Love, he knew, it's almost like the same way that if Jonathan Demi could ask him to write a song for Philadelphia, he could do it. He sort of, I think, started giving himself parameters, you know, and so he knew what kind of songs would be on Tunnel Love, roughly, and he wrote them. And so, I mean, there were some outtakes, but there weren't dozens, but I think he just became more focused, I think.
1: It's that that work ethic.
0: It's the work ethic. And sometimes the work ethic is gaining some wisdom so you're not freaking out on the work ethic the way you used to. Using your work ethic a little more wisely instead of just burning everyone into the ground which is really what he did. I mean, Chuck Plockin, his longtime producer and he's the guy I not only did the most interviews with it for this book, but I think is the the person in my entire career with whom I've done the longest total interviews probably, which is we spoke for over 10 hours. Wow. Going over many, many years from 78 to 2000 of of Bruce sessions. It was a really emotional and cathartic conversation because Chuck is no longer part of Bruce's production team and it was painful to go back to these memories, they're, they're very, very precious memories. Of, among the greatest things he's done in his life. And tell me a, about Nebraska, because that's such a
2: that's such a different way of recording. It. It's such a unique moment in his whole history. Did you learn
0: anything about that that you didn't know when you started? One of the things that was interesting with Nebraska is understanding what was going on in his head. And Chuck and some other people, and Max and other people, helped me understand that. Which is just that Bruce was already after the success of the River Tour, which was very, very successful. It wasn't on TV as much and everything, so it was it's harder to sort of feel that externally. You don't have, like, the Dancing in the Dark video or, to look at or the other kind of footage of it. But keep in mind they were playing to huge, sold-out arenas for the first time and feeling, you know, and in Europe greeted like they were Elvis Presley and the Beatles combined, and just it was the Peak of all of that, and it started to freak him out already, and that's something I didn't quite realize that he was already he's already kind of feeling, like uh oh this might be getting out of control. He was also starting to feel as he wrote, you know, the first bits of of what would become a lifetime of depression started to become on onto him, and one of the dots I was able to connect was he always said Nebraska reminded him of his early childhood and reminded him of his grandparents. But we didn't know until Peter Collins' book and then even more so until Bruce's book what that really meant. And what that really meant was really dark stuff of grandparents who were really suffering and slipping to the sort of margins of society and some a very unusual kind of household there. And so then we start to really understand the origin of Nebraska. And that's, I think, what I was able to do there. I was able to write a little bit more and connect some more dots, yeah.
2: So then talk to me a, about time because he brings in such a great drummer. He wrote a bunch of great songs that all sounded good when he played them at the Echoristic show. And he wrote some songs that were so-so,
0: but what went wrong, do you think? Well, one of my favorite anecdotes, and there's a lot, but one of my favorite anecdotes is uh, Toby Scott, who was Bruce's long, long, long-time engineer And sort of the keeper of a lot of mysteries, he knew so much they had to be careful because he was, you know, whatever. I mean, it's like talking to a politician's body man. He'd been there for so, so long and knew so much. So he had to be a little careful. But, you know, he unlocked a lot of mysteries for me. And one of my favorite anecdotes is, you know, Toby was told by Bruce right at the beginning of the human touch process. Bruce was like, you know what? I want to get a whole new guitar sound. I want to start from scratch, get a whole new guitar sound. Get me some guitars and amps. We're going to reinvent this thing. And and so Toby went out and got him, you know, and that's how you can actually see him in the Human Touch um, in the booklet. He's playing like a Les Paul and stuff. Like he's got all sorts of different guitars. He's like, I'm going to do it. I'm no more, you know. And and so he gets him all these things and they experiment and they experiment. (laughs) This sounds like a made up story But it's really yeah. true It's just too perfect And so he Basically Toby said Bruce would plug it in Different amp It wouldn't be the Fender amp They usually had Different amp Different guitar Bruce Alright right, all we'll plug it in And start It's like alright This doesn't sound quite right And starts turning dials Turning everything Turning the volume Turning the amp gain Whatever And by the time he was done It would sound exactly Like his old guitar through his old amp, and I think that is almost too perfect a metaphor for someone who wanted to change, but maybe didn't really want to change, and also didn't really know what it meant to change.
2: Huh, but by hiring Brendan O'Brien, do you think that really changed his process when he brought him in for The Rising?
0: He did, and I'll, I'll just to finish on Human Touch for a second. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, d- basically part of the thing that was really interesting is... That he and Roy Bitten recorded these very detailed demos as a two-man band, like Roy would play like drum machine and synth bass and stuff, and like make a full band sound. And then they would actually have these musicians, Randy Jackson, the Randy Jackson who I talked to from American Idol, who was already apparently calling everyone "dog" and everything, even the Bruce said. And Bruce just apparently loved him because he was such a bright presence. Like you can sure. imagine, Randy Jackson, but it's probably like this guy should be on TV. He's very charming. Right. So, <laughs> but him and, and Jeff Porcaro, and they went through a lot of drummers before they got to Jeff. And there's there's apparently lost unheard versions of all sorts of drummers playing and stuff, but those guys were playing over the demos. They would also sometimes record the songs from scratch, but some of what you hear on the album, apparently, is these super session musicians playing over demos, which is, yikes, like, a good way to make too slick an album. But you asked about Brendan O'Brien, I mean, by the time Bruce got to Brendan O'Brien, he was ready to change a lot of things. And I think that was really, really good for him. And Brendan was willing to challenge Bruce a lot. He tried to get him to release an 11-song version of the Rising much shorter, but Bruce, I think, interestingly said to him that, like, I don't know when I'm doing this again, so we're putting them all out. He's like, You're probably right, but we're putting them all out. So that explains, let's be friends. It does, and you know, and then that was the funny thing is is talking about you know you and I, Andy. I defended "Let's Be Friends" for years, only to find out talking to Brendan O'Brien, the producer, that he was too polite to say what he thought. But he goes, "I remember that song. Let's just leave that there." <laughs> and and it's also notable that I didn't realize this at all that that's the one song on the album that Brendan didn't even really work on. That's really like a Toby Scott. It's essentially a gussied up demo, actually. Right. So that's another reason why it doesn't fit perhaps a little bit sonically on the album.
2: Right. And then to fast forward a bit, so you went to Bruce's home studio in this process. So just talk about that.
0: Yeah, it was. I keep saying it was a little bit like Home Alone because me and Rana Aniello, who's Bruce's current producer and is the greatest guy, he's had some really nice things to say about the book, which is very gratifying. But Ron invited me to the Colts Neck property to Bruce's studio, which, of course, you don't... By the way, doesn't happen unless Bruce and his management say it's okay. We weren't, like, sneaking around, obviously. And I'd been there before when I interviewed Bruce. But that was fascinating because Ron broke down the basic tracks of all the songs, basically, he recorded with Bruce... Starting with Wrecking Ball, so I got to hear the actual origins of the songs, and, and hopefully write about it a bit. Which is like, here's Bruce just kind of strumming and singing some rough lyrics, and here's how we layered drum loops over that, and then we added this, and then here's the guitar that you know someone played, but Ron replayed it because it came out a little wonky, and just. You really get a sense. It actually made it seem honestly like really fun. That was a, one of the things that I took away from that is like it feels like Ron and Bruce have this really fun relationship where it's it's not stressful because just, you have all the time in the world and you're in your own studio and the Pro Tools gives you the flexibility. It's not so much chopping things up and editing. It's just trying stuff. You can overdub a million. Tr- it's back a little bit to that which is where he kind of started moving and working on the dream. It's a little bit back to that born-to-run experimentation. Like, you can throw the kitchen sink on there and then delete it if you want.
2: Right, and by not having to book time at the record plant and burn money by the hour, he has a whole new process now.
0: He does have a new process. You know, as Bruce said, I'm not revealing anything, just what Bruce said, he, he said that he's taking the ear off from the E Street Band for, quote, studio projects I've been working on. Mm-hmm. So they're definitely working on something
2: yeah and it's definitely time because the past 10 years that there hasn't been a lot of new Bruce songs out there really
0: yeah what I hope is that they've actually been working this whole time and we're, we're going to see the fruits of that but we, we really don't know I have no inside information about this but we'll see
2: are you sick of Springsteen yet or are you still <laughs> able to play the albums and really enjoy them
0: oh you know to be totally honest if the book had gotten like a really bad reception yeah. no one was buying it everyone hated it then it probably would have it would have been a while before i could listen to bruce again but this is is i'm pumping it I'm, I'm, I, don't know, <laughs> I don't know i'm not necessarily like blasting it but when he put out that new live playlist on title i definitely played that uh-huh. and so no I'm, I'm not sick of it yet if, if something bad happens then <laughs> then, <laughs> then yes but uh, but no it, it's been great so far actually i think i can announce this which is on may 30th At 7 p.m. the listing hasn't gone up yet But at 7 p.m. at the Barnes & Noble Upper West Side On May 30th I will be joined by none other than mighty Max Weinberg to discuss the stories behind Bruce Springsteen's songs And Max's long career with the E Street Band And all that good stuff And I'm so looking forward to that That's going to be awesome So, But anyway, this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now I'm Brian Hyde I was in the studio with David Brown Who's the author of the excellent new Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young biography We also spoke about my new book Bruce Springsteen's stories behind the songs And Andrew Green was here to help us out And we'll be back next week Here on Sirius XM volume channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast, subscribe to us as a podcast, leave us a nice review if you can. And as always, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.